Welcome back, everybody, for Justin and I's fourth and final episode on Harry Truman and the third part in our series on Harry Truman and the start of the Cold War. In this episode, we are going to talk primarily about the Korean War, but also about the Asian occupation generally. And uh, I'll be honest, it's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> uh, if you're hoping for sunshine at the end of this series, uh, afraid you might need to look somewhere else. Uh, but I'd also like to remind everybody that if you are a beloved patron, or if you were a beloved patron, you would have gotten to hear this episode two weeks ago. So uh, pop on over to Patreon, where for the price of a Starbucks latte, you can, too, be one of the chosen and hear all the episodes first. Uh, right now, we got a ton of content up over there, uh, including an episode where uh, Munya and Colin educate old man Greg and I about what the kids are listening to, which apparently is Ariel Pink and John Mouse or something like that. I'm not entirely sure. You can go to the episode. I'm just as befuddled during the episode. It's good stuff. And Justin and I are also going to have some uh, more good history episodes coming for you. I don't want to uh, spoil it, but we have a series in the works that is... It's going to be about a man, well, what can you say? Sometimes there's a man who likes to dictate to his inferiors while he's uh, shitting with the door open. Or, I don't know, when people make him mad, just likes to put Jumbo down on the table and let them know who's really in charge. So we had that to look forward to in the coming months. And I'll be appearing again first on Patreon. So uh, pop over to our Patreon site, sign up, and uh, be in the know. All right. Well, I will uh, see you all on the other side. Oh, hey, Brent, how was your weekend? Oh, um, it was good. I, Have I mean, you listened to the latest Mechanical Freak about Harry Truman? Uh, oh, mm. man, they're so good. So first, it begins with the 1944 DNC. And you see, there's this guy, Harry Truman. There's this guy, Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace is definitely going to be Roosevelt's VP and future president. But the thing is, he wants stuff like health care for everybody and some sort of universal income. And worst of all, he wants to be friends with the Soviet Union. Gross. So they work this backroom deal at the convention and they decide, let's get this loser that nobody remembers or thinks anything about other than the fact that he's purely mediocre, Harry Truman. Oh, let's I make Biden. <laughs> let's make him the VP. Uh, and let's like lock out a whole bunch of people from the convention so they're not able to vote against him. And so they do. And he becomes president. Oh. Uh, okay. So then... Uh, Harry Truman, he gets to become president at the very end of World War II. That's this really big war where all these people are fighting. Uh -huh. And he get, makes this decision uh, to use these nuclear weapons against Japan. But the crazy part is Japan was already trying to surrender, and he just delayed their surrender so he could use the weapons. And the weirdest, craziest part is he actually makes the choice to use it against the civilian population, even though lots of people you know, give him offers to use it like on an uninhabited island or against abandoned military base and Truman says no then people won't get how scary the weapon is the Soviet Union will understand how terrifying it is isn't that nuts yeah yeah and so and then flashback to Europe and in Germany 
all of a sudden, the U.S. is having all sorts of, like, buyer's remorse. Like, were we on the right side of this war, even? And so they decide to start making friends with all the Nazis and bring them back to the United States and have them start making policy. And then they take a bunch of the other Nazis and they put them in charge of Germany. At the same time, they tell the Soviet Union, hey, why don't we divide Germany and we'll have, like, a reunification vote in five years, but then say, fuck it, and just keep rolling and, like, rearm them and everything. It's fucking crazy, bro. Wow. Uh, I gotta go feed the cat now. from Europe back to Asia. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about the post-war order in Asia as well. In Japan, you know, in Germany, we talked about it got divided into these occupation zones, and there actually was a plan floated for Japan to, to do something like that, to divide it in half, in this case, between an American and a uh, Soviet occupation. And uh, let's just say the U.S. Uh, went ahead and threw that one out outright. Now, the U.S. explanation for that was the Soviet Union never invaded Japan, so it shouldn't be allowed to occupy any part of it. Uh, if you're a Japanese person, you might start asking, wait, the U.S. didn't invade Japan either. <laughs> <laughs> Famously, you would claim later that you dropped two bombs on us to avoid having to do that. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, and the Soviet Union, I mean, did... Uh, did march into you know japanese uh, uh manchuria, manchuria yeah. yeah or manchuko i believe as they called it but yeah, yeah yeah either way i feel like they both probably had equal claim to it uh but you know it's interesting how that stuff sort of works i i would argue the occupation of uh east germany basically only existed because the soviet union got to berlin right yeah um but so the occupation of japan it, it is essentially overseen uh, by the U.S. military and the commander in the area, who is the uh, a real fucking character of this immediate post-war period, and Douglas MacArthur, right? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, this is an era where um, you know every every World War II general is uh, famous and popular, and uh, each of these generals have like you know varying levels of popularity, but MacArthur is one of the most popular ones, along with Eisenhower. Um, but one of the one of the reasons, you know, MacArthur becomes so popular is that he basically, uh, during this period from 1945 to 1951, when the U.S. is occupying Japan, uh, you know, MacArthur is basically like de facto just ruling over Japan. Uh, you know, he's uh, the U.S. has stripped the emperor of, you know, whatever powers he had, made sure the emperor, you know, wasn't prosecuted for war crimes or anything, but the emperor had no power. And, uh, yeah, I mean, MacArthur was, uh, you know, very, very good, mostly very good public uh, speaker. He was, uh, you know, like in every, like, opinion poll, and we'll talk about this later, he had very high, you know, popularity. And he was even uh, floated as a GOP, you know, presidential candidate in 1948, as was Eisenhower. 
Yeah, and I mean, he is this sort of interesting, I mean, charismatic in a way character, right? I think he like really spoke to right-wing America yeah. <laughs> at the time. Um, and I think we, we, cut, we sort of talked a little bit off air uh, about sort of the difference between him and Japan and Patton and Europe, whereas... I think MacArthur saw himself as a political figure, whereas Patton yeah. didn't. I mean, you know, the big problem with Patton, you know, it, in Western Europe, other than the fact that he wasn't immune to getting hit by cars, uh, one of his big problems was that he would just say fucking whatever, right, to anybody. You know, he would he would sit there and tell the press corps, yeah, we're rearming Nazi Germany and we're going to invade the Soviet Union, which is something he actually fucking said. And then, like, the president would have to step in and, like, Truman had to step in and be like, dude, shut the fuck up, all right? Like, seriously, stop fucking talking to people. Um, a general freak, like a real fucking psychopathic freak. Whereas MacArthur is also a psychopathic freak, but uh, but maybe not psychopathic, maybe he's sociopathic, right? Like, he, he sees himself as a political figure. And he sticks to, you know, bashing communists. Rather mm-hmm. than, you know, Patton, you know, blatantly like supporting Nazis. Yeah, he understands that you can't say that there's things that are meant to be quiet and things that you can say out loud, right? It doesn't yeah. mean that it restrains what you can do. It just means that you can't say some of the things you're doing, which uh, Patton never could quite put that together. I mean, it also kind of explains why their military careers are very different as well. I mean, MacArthur ascends in the military much faster than Patton does. Uh, which doesn't seem to be, you know, a testament to any sort of, uh, if anybody understands the U.S. military, or really any military, uh, ascending the ranks really has nothing to do with your uh, acumen in battle or anything like that. It really is who kisses the best ass in, the, in a lot of cases. But um, MacArthur's this sort of interesting character. And probably, I mean, one of the reasons why he might not have run in 48 is that, uh, as people used to joke in Japan itself, I mean, they used to call him the new emperor of Japan. I mean, he really yeah. was running the fucking islands. I mean, you could um, argue that's more power than he would have had yeah. as president of the United States. Yeah, he wasn't having to deal with like a pesky Congress or anything like that. I mean, he really is um, essentially the like the end point of politics, beginning and end point of politics in Japan. I mean, to the point that his, uh, which we'll talk about, you know, here in a little bit. Uh, his being demoted by Truman and brought back to the U.S. Yeah. actually leads to it's it's the uh, precursor to the Japanese economic miracle in that uh, essentially MacArthur was turning Japan into this like comical feudal state, um, yeah. you know, basically highly agrarian and all this. I mean, there's really interesting uh, books from GIs who are in Japan immediately after the war. And all they talk about is like, you know, these agrarian scenes, right? It's like all they describe, which is partially noble savage shit, but also partially just true. You know, it was what the kind of MacArthur was actively deindustrializing the country. Um, but I mean, he, he just was this very powerful figure. And from Japan, he was able to project his power into other areas in the in the Asia theater, essentially, which we'll get into. Yeah, um, I mean, I know MacArthur was also, you know, he had met uh, Shanghai Shek at some point. Uh, he was a big, you know, supporter of, uh, you know, the nationalist, you know, right-wing forces in China. Um, that'll, yeah, that'll come up again as we talk more. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and Chiang Kai-shek is the head of the Kuomintang, which I'm sure Matt, our, Chinese, our China correspondent, is going to be very mad at my pronunciation. But the Kuomintang, or KMT, uh, Chiang Kai-shek is the head of which is the nationalist forces in China. Um, so, you know, along with this sort of occupation of Japan, uh, there's also a similar to what we see in Germany. There's a decision to divide Korea, right? And I will point out that the occupation, the full occupation, total occupation of Japan versus the divided Korea, uh, the reason why that ends up happening is the Soviet Union is in Korea, right? The armies are in Korea. And uh, because the Soviet Union's in Korea and the U.S. isn't, uh, Truman basically uh, floats the idea to the Soviet Union that, hey, let's divide Korea at the 38th parallel, you know, just like we kind of have in Germany. We'll just have zones of influence, right? Mm -hmm. We'll have a South Korea and a North Korea. And this ends up getting included in General Order 1 of the Japanese surrender, um, which for Korea, who have been under sort of the Japanese boot since 1910, I'm sure the Korean people were thrilled to learn that the fate of their country or the fate of their peninsula was decided in a Japanese surrender that they had no participation in whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had another occupying army. <laughs> exactly. It's democracy. It's wonderful how it works, right? Um, so... Essentially, at the Moscow conference, which comes after the Potsdam conference, at the Moscow conference, where they're sort of talking a lot about the sort of uh, post-war Asia, there's an agreement. And again, this is one of those things that's going to sound very repetitive from what we talked about in Germany and what we're going to talk about here in a second as well, uh, that they'll have a five-year trusteeship of North and South Korea, at which point they will have a referendum and a reunification of the peninsula, right? Uh, right to, yeah. to have a unified Korea. And as anybody who knows anything about Korea today knows, uh, happened. Yeah, <laughs> no, what's going on right now? Yeah, no need to talk about it. it, it done. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, so, you know, after basically three months of the occupation, um, General Hodge, who's one of the advisors for Truman from the War Department, basically tells Truman by Occidental standards or by Western standards, Koreans are not ready for independence. And then he goes on to argue that, uh, you know, if, if the U S were to leave Korea, it'd become extremely fertile ground for the establishment of communism. So again, same, same story, different place. Right. Now, right. And like, you know, the additional context too, is that, uh, you know, Mao's people's army has, you know emerged victorious somewhere around this this time uh yeah i'm 49 and that's gonna put a real panic so this is actually a little bit before 49 which so the panic hasn't fully set in yet yeah but um i mean an important thing to note by the way which we'll maybe we'll get into this a little bit more when we talk about the korean war is that the north korean military or what would become essentially the north korean military it consisted of people all over korea uh that essentially it got its battle chops. Like you might say like, man, why are they so good at fighting by the time of the Korean war? They got their battle chops because they essentially, after getting expelled from Korea by the Japanese occupation, moved into Manchuria and essentially linked up with Mao and the, you know, people's army in in China and fought the Japanese with them. Right. So they had been fighting the Japanese occupation and, uh, China for about a decade before they went back to Korea. <laughs> so yeah. these guys were not 
slouches and apparently were famed for being very good fighters right uh the japanese are really tied in knots they were uh very excited to uh uh kill kim il-sung they, they apparently had whole units dedicated to finding and killing kim il-sung oh, wow. um yeah yeah these guys are not nobodies like, we laugh at the kim family now because you know like any monarchist you know thing uh it goes downhill real quick but uh uh, Kim Il-sung was not uh, just a funny character. You yeah. know, he wasn't he wasn't hanging with Dennis Rodman and uh, trying to make movies. Uh, so leaving Korea for a second, we'll come back later. Yep. Uh, the reoccupation of Vietnam, again, is just another sort of story of how this whole thing plays out, which with a slightly different flavor and that Vietnam had been occupied by the French since the 1890s, right? And that occupation gets briefly disrupted in 1940 by a Japanese occupation of Vietnam uh, that lasts, obviously, until 45. And then, of course, after 45, uh, Ho Chi Minh, who had been the organizer of the Vietnamese resistance initially against the French, uh, occupation and then against the Japanese occupation and had done the bol- pretty much all the fighting in Vietnam. Um, he declares in 45 after the Japanese surrender that uh, here I'll read his, uh, his speech. He gives all men are created equal. The creator has given us certain inviolable rights, the right to life, the right to be free and the right to achieve happiness. If that sounds familiar, he then says, these words are taken from the Declaration of Independence of the United States. In a larger sense, this means that all the people on Earth are born equal. All the people have the right to live, to be happy, to be free. I would argue that I don't think that Ho fully understood the Declaration of Independence there, but, you know, he was busy doing fighting, so what can you do? Yeah. Um, so Ho Chi Minh declares the independence of Vietnam. Uh, the French cry foul and say, but Vietnam is part of France. Uh, that makes sense. Just look at a globe. <laughs> um, the British essentially step in to reestablish. So the British military steps in to reestablish French rule in, in uh, Vietnam. Uh, that, of course, goes famously badly. Uh, the French kind of bumble their way through Vietnam, just massacring people until 54, uh, at which point, the United States, which had gotten involved, uh, actually under the Truman Administration, had gotten involved sending money and aid to Vietnam. Uh, they get involved and they decide on a plan for the French defeat after the French defeat, which is why not divide Vietnam into two sections? There'll be a North Vietnam that is the uh, popular part that everybody agrees with and the government everybody wants. And we'll have the South Vietnamese government, which is us. You know, the, just a U.S. occupation that goes on for yeah. 20 years. This uh, they, uh, division works once, you know, why not just use it as many yeah. times as possible? Exactly. They even say uh, in the initial occupation, we'll have a five-year, you know, north-south oh divide. Then there'll be a referendum. There'll be unification. <laughs> of course, the U.S. finds out very quickly that that referendum would go very badly for the U.S. and immediately dumps it. <laughs> basically this Um, is the beginning of the vietnam war (laughs) have you have you seen the the ken burns documentary on vietnam curious what you think of that i have not seen it because uh you know i i should go rewatch it i watched the civil war documentary that ken burns had which i must Mm -hmm. say is aggressively bad 
Um, but that being said, I also watched that one he did on the uh, Central Park Five, which is very good. So I know that Kim Burns has it in him to do something good. So maybe I should watch the Vietnam one. I just feel like I'm, I'm it's going to make me bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I believe I think I watched a couple episodes. Like it definitely will will have things you know you don't agree with. Like he'll frame you know the Vietnam War as like being fought with good intentions, you know, by yeah. men who are just doing their best. But uh, I mean, there there is some uh, some of the history of the you know the, the French colonization of it as well. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam and Korea actually share this kind of uh, central thing of like the. The Vietnamese, I mean, the nations really haven't existed for more than like a couple hundred years as we like know them today as having like constituted borders and things, but like national identities kind of have. And the Vietnamese people's like national identity is actually quite like long and deep. And um, the sort of imperial occupation of Vietnam from the French uh, was resisted from the very beginning and was considered like a, you know, I mean, a, a great sort of travesty and injustice, like for the Vietnamese people, as you obviously would be, right? And, you know, this idea of going from a French occupation to a Japanese occupation to then again the French being reinstalled by the British, uh, all under the language of democracy and freedom, yeah. and then a U.S. occupation for 20 years. I mean, it is this really stunning story. I mean, you want a true underdog story. I mean... And again, it's one of those things too. Uh, you know why? You know why are these people in Vietnam so good at fighting? And it's like, well, that's all they've done now for a hundred years. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, under some They're of the most brutal, them. yeah, under the most brutal military occupations that you know humanity's ever seen, which peaked every time. Like the French occupation was bad, the Japanese occupation was worse, and the American occupation was genocide. I yeah. mean, it really was horrifying. And the Korea is the same way. Korea has, you know, a thousand year old national identity. Like it really is a, you know, it wasn't necessarily a country under its dynasty, but it basically was like, I mean, it, it, it's not like Germany, which is just a bunch of like fiefdoms that came together in 1880. Right. Like it's, it's, it's a real thing. Like it exists. Yeah. And, and um, that the Japanese occupied it in 1910 and basically didn't let go until 45. And, the Japanese occupation was truly horrifying of Korea involving, you know, slavery, comfort women, all this kind of every every horrifying thing you can imagine, uh, which then is followed up by an American occupation that continues to this day. And the American occupation is uh, started off by, I think what I'm going to argue is one of the great genocides of uh, human history. I mean, a really horrifying event. Um but yeah, I mean, they're sort of they're like linked together in that sense. Uh, uh, Korea and Vietnam. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, the uh, the Vietnamese occupation, right? So you know, basically everything in the groundwork uh, for well, end up being the American occupation of Vietnam that's going to last twenty years. Uh, basically, gets laid in the Truman administration and the decision to back the French's efforts to recolonize the country. Uh, something that I think even people in the Truman administration are like, uh, you know, like the French can't occupy their own country. Like, you know, yeah. why, why, why do you think this is going to work? But in the name of anti-communism, right. You know, it has to be done. Um, you know, really interesting. So 
The other big event in post-war Asia is what you alluded to earlier, which is the victory of the Communist Party in the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Ironically, something that Henry Wallace saw coming in 1944. Yeah, you mentioned that on a previous episode. <laughs> yeah, but nobody nobody listened to him, clearly. Um. And also, like, 1949, I believe, like, uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of things were going on. So I think this is the year that, uh, you know, Russia detonated the atomic bomb themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also you have, uh, you know, the People's Army, uh, you know, uh, emerging victorious. In yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, despite the uh, fumbles at diplomacy on the part of the Soviet Union uh, for the Soviet Union and Communist China, right? It's a pretty good year, you know, (laughs) as far as uh, things that they accomplish, I guess. Yeah. Um, You know, and both of them set off like an equal panic, right? So in the case of the Soviet bomb, there is this enormous panic because, of course, the, you know, uh, as we discussed earlier with the uh, anti, the sort of uh, Orientalist uh, view of the Soviet Union, you know, the Asian mind can't possibly create something like a nuclear weapon. So there was an enormous panic over where did the where did they get this bomb, right? Which of course had to be from us. They they could not have developed such a thing on their own, which by the way they did. But uh, that ends up leading to actually the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg as uh, you know the. Uh, essentially the witches that had to be burned uh, for the American failure of preventing the Soviets from getting a bomb. But the other thing that, you know, ends up happening is with the uh, victory in China. I mean, the panic that gets set off by that really can't be understated. It's, it's, it, it really gets crazy. Um, People are lobbing back and forth the, you know, you lost China epithets and things like that. This because a real political football as well. Yeah, definitely. I know, like, you know, Republican senators like, uh, you know, Taft are, yeah, just, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of crapping on Truman for uh, Truman, Marshall, you know, like Atchison for, uh, yeah, just dropping the ball on China as well as uh, trying to appease the, Soviet. Yeah, and the thing is, is that um, you know the, the you mentioned this uh, in our notes, but the the Democrats just completely eat shit in the nineteen fifty uh, midterms. Yeah, and there's a lot of reasons why they eat shit, but this is a big part of it. Like this is this is a real club that the Republicans are definitely not afraid to use on them, uh, when it comes to the the midterms. I mean, the other part of it is uh, maybe you could argue that. Uh, essentially ruling as an insane right-wing party, which Truman was basically doing at this point, uh, doesn't like win you a lot of support in the public. You know, kind of moving away from the New Deal and towards the Cold War might not have been politically good for him. Yeah, I think um, in the 1950 midterms, uh, the Democrats go from a 12 Senate seat advantage to like a two seat advantage. So they don't like totally lose it, but... Uh, <laughs> They, yeah, it does not go well for them. The Democrats really had built like a pretty durable um, political base and pretty a pretty durable like uh, just political seat at the table through the New Deal. Like they 
they really should have been the the and they were in a lot of ways but they really should have been much more the dominant party for like the next several decades in the u.s uh but falling you know falling into the cold war trap of you know becoming you know america's best cold warriors really fucks them (laughs) in a lot of ways well they get outflanked by yeah like nixon Mm -hmm. you know taft uh mccarthy coming up too yeah What's well, the classic too of you know uh, the 2016 election of you know you have Hillary Clinton who's this bullshit artist running a right wing campaign and you have Donald Trump who's a bullshit artist running a right wing campaign and it's like well you know why not just vote for the Republican because at least you're getting the real thing so, you know yeah. one seems a little fake so I, I just get the real psycho you know yeah. in there but it's uh, yeah, so the Democrats eat shit in 1950, and in the law, lo- in the the loss of China, the Chinese victory in 49 is is a big part of that. And the U.S. is uh, incredibly bitter about this for quite a while, and does uh, some real Cuba Haiti shit of refusing to acknowledge the Chinese government up until the 1970s, which is really important because when the U.S. thought the KMT was going to win the Civil War, which is when the U.N. was created, uh, the U.S. created this dumb thing called the Security Council, which is why the U.N. should be abolished, really. Yeah, yeah. And gave China... Yeah, and they gave China a seat on that because they figure if China has a seat, you know, we have Britain, they're our ally, that's little America... We have France on there, which is like, they're iffy, but they're on our side, right? But who knows in the future? And then they have the Soviet Union. They're like, let's give China a seat. That'll that'll give us another, that'll give basically be another American vote on the- Quote, unquote, China. Yeah. And so then, of course, you know, in typical fashion, the US, you know, creates this idiot fucking council, gives China a seat, and then the KMT eats fucking shit in the Civil War because nobody fucking likes them. And, you know, they have no fucking support inside the country itself, which anybody who went there could have told them as Wallace did. Um, But, you know, like, you know, U.S. diplomacy is equally as stupid as Soviet diplomacy. It just blows up in different ways in their face. But uh, so they basically just refuse to acknowledge yeah, the communist government in China and Taiwan holds the Chinese uh, seat in the UN up until 72, I believe, and 71. Yeah, they end up holding the seat until 71. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, really yeah. astonishing shit. Um, but you think of a country the size of China and then basically this farce of like, no, uh, the people who are actually in charge is these 20 people on Taiwan, <laughs> you know unbelievable also explains why the you know one one of the many reasons why the uh chinese government periodically uh toys with the idea of just shelling taiwan back into the ocean but yeah um so that's sort of the grounds of what's happening in asia and that that panic over china is going to become really important in talking about the korean war it's it's gonna really push the escalation button a lot of ways but so before we get into the Korean War itself, there's the little question of the U.S. occupation. And again, this is going to start to sound real familiar. But in 1945, the U.S. Uh, outlaws the Korean Workers' Party, which is the Communist Party in Korea. Oh. Uh, outlaws it from participating in any political events or social sort of events, things like that. Um, it also outlaws any worker and youth committees that are associated with it. And by the way, associated with it means does the U.S. believe you're associated with it, right? Yeah. Uh, labor strikes are banned and martial law is immediately declared. So just get rid of that pesky democracy thing <laughs> right off the bat. 
Former Japanese occupation uh, officers are brought back in to uh, act as advisors on how to rule over the Korean people, and they train a new Korean constabulary, which is just police force, right? Uh, 85% of Koreans in this new police force are collaborators who worked as police or soldiers during the Japanese occupation. Others, they pull from fascist youth gangs that are increasingly running rampant through the cities of South Korea. Uh, the gangs themselves form paramilitary networks that are going to be important later. In 1947, ACLU attorney Roger Baldwin tours Korea and reports back, quote, the country is literally in the grip of a police regime and a private terror. You get the impression of a beaten and discouraged people. So in 47, the U.S. reverses its policy on Japanese occupation and ends all the war crime trials. Wow. Uh, many Jap- yeah, I know, it's weird. This is just a, a you know, just play the record back, right? Uh, many Japanese war criminals are put back into prominent positions, including in Korea. The U.S. creates the Republic of Korea in violation of the Moscow Conference Agreement in 1947. Uh, again, the idea was five years and then a vote for uh, unification. Now the U.S. says, fuck that, and forms the Republic of Korea, right? George Marshall sends a note to Dean Acheson in January of 47, quote, please have a plan drafted of policy to organize a definite government of South Korea and connect its economy up with that of Japan. In effect, they're declaring South Korea to be an extension of the U.S. military occupation of Japan. By 1948, the Republic of South Korea is, or the Republic of Korea, which is South Korea, is given its own military, again, in violation of the Moscow Agreement. And Sigmund Rhee is, quote-unquote, elected the head of uh, the Republic of South Korea. Much like Conrad Adenauer, uh, nobody can remember voting for Sigmund Rhee, but he will stay in office for 12 years until somebody shoots him in the head. So this becomes, by the way, a traditional method of uh, U.S. uh, This is how U.S. plants and leadership in Asia tend to lose their job is uh, through some sort of usually CIA-backed execution. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's just amazing, like, how much of uh, these patterns are, you know, recurring, whether it's through, you know, Germany, uh, you know, Korea, Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, the U.S. back to ruler in Vietnam also gets uh, gets gets got when he becomes inconvenient towards. Uh, I think it's about sixty five, maybe. When he gets to become a little inconvenient. Uh, Park Chung Hee, who takes over uh, after Re, uh, and basically rules as a dictator in Korea up until nineteen seventy nine, uh, actually gets shot in the head by one of his own uh, security forces. <laughs> so they evacuate him to a uh, safe house. Uh, telling him that, you know, there's protests. We got to evacuate the safe house. When they get him to the safe house, they just fucking murk him. Uh, and then, of course, the Korean police execute the guy that shot him very quickly. So uh, who knows what the whole story is behind all that? Uh, you know, we'll find out. Probably not. So, yeah, so, part, you know, uh, Sigmund Rhee ends up being put in charge. Uh you know, the the government of South Korea essentially has no legitimacy against the Korean population at large, which is something that, again, is talked about repeatedly in U.S. diplomatic cables. Uh, they make it very clear in conversations with one another that Korea can't have any sort of democracy because we would essentially lose in any sort of election. Um, and the occupation is too valuable to lose. 
Uh, by 47, the U.S. openly acknowledges that reunification cannot happen. So this leads to a lot of political unrest in South Korea. And uh, there's a key moment in it. The unrest is really brutally repressed, but there's a really key moment in 48, which there's a up, an uprising on an island uh, off the coast of South Korea called Cheju Island. And I apologize for pronunciation there, but... Uh, there's an uprising, and the South Korean military, with the U.S. support, goes onto the island and essentially carries out, again, what can only be called a, a genocide on the island. The island has about 300,000 inhabitants. 60,000 of them are killed outright. Uh, 40,000 more flee the island as refugees, going to China, Japan, really anywhere, North Korea, anywhere they can go. 100,000 of them are moved into concentration camps that are run by the military. So at this point, we're talking, you know, two-thirds of the island's population has either been killed, turned into refugees, or put in concentration camps. Uh, they destroy 39,000 homes and demolish half of the villages, just completely level them with bulldozers uh, during the occupation. Um, it's this really key moment that signals to everybody involved how this is going to go, right? How this occupation is going to go. Yeah, it's fucking horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a signal of what the war is going to be like, too. But so the main point about this is, you know, it's hard not to draw a connection between this and the conversation that the Los Alamos Targeting Committee was having about dropping the bomb over the idea that civilians are the stated target, right? And in the occupation of Korea, uh, as well as what we're going to see in the Korean War, the U.S. really goes out of its way to kill as many civilians as possible. Like, I think you could really argue that, and I, Bruce Cummings, I think, makes this argument, he's uh, an American historian of Korea, that the Korean War wasn't against North Korea per se. It really was against the Korean people. Like, it was to kill as many Korean people as humanly possible, you know, as quickly as possible. Um really astonishing astonishingly brutal so throughout this period of course there's military forces on both sides of the 38th parallel and there is constant tension uh on that sort of divide right the divide's not recognized by north korea or south korea it's really only recognized by the united states and the soviet union and let's just say soldiers are constantly going across that border and shooting other people or getting shot right and I mean, like the way those areas are split, it is not like in a healthy way. Like uh, from what I read, the you know South Korea at the time was mostly agrarian. North Korea was mostly you know industrial, um, and yeah. uh, also much much smaller in size. Yeah, they literally drew it on a map. Like they just looked at a map and were like. Oh, there's a line going through Korea that looks like we get roughly half of it. Yeah. I I think it could probably be argued, I'm almost sure it's probably true, that when Truman decided on the 38th parallel, he had no idea what was on either side of it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know? 100%. Like, yeah, the, side, the idea that one side was largely agrarian, because was a, if he knew that, he'd probably want the industrial side of it. But, you know, I don't think he knew what was on either side of it. Uh, there's also at the time, I mean, there were 
towns and villages and stuff that were on the 38th parallel. They don't exist anymore, right? But like, you know, this wasn't a clear-cut border. It was totally arbitrarily imposed, you know? Um, and again, it's important to see, this was all imposed from above, right? Nobody in Korea wanted this. Like, I mean, that's that's the key thing. Yeah. Like, even the insane reactionaries in South Korea who were a minority all the way up to today are, an ins- are a very influential but very small minority in South Korea. Even they didn't want it. You know, it, this really was entirely an invention of U.S. and Soviet diplomatic policy. Um, but because, you know, these two sides, neither side's agreeing to it, there's tensions. I mean, they're shooting at each other across the border. There's also a tension because the soldiers for North Korea tend to be the soldiers who fought against the Japanese occupation. And as we mentioned, the soldiers in South Korea tend to be the soldiers who fought for the Japanese occupation. So the thing is, is that they're fighting each other and shooting each other is a really a continuation of what they've been doing for a while now too. Like there's no clear line for them that we're in a different epoch. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, these are just the people who have been shooting at each other for, you know, uh, since 1910, essentially. Now at this time, as we get it up into about 1948, 49, um, the ROK or South Korea is, sending like military units as sorties into North Korea to essentially cause havoc and attempt to precipitate some sort of North Korean response to justify a military conflict. Now we know this because Simeon Rhee brags to reporters, I'm sending units into North Korea <laughs> to precipitate a military conflict. <laughs> So going to tell you exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. He uh, apparently is saying this so much. There's actually a CIA intervention that I think we're probably at this point one step away from dumping him in a fucking, you know, riverbed somewhere. Uh, but yeah, there's an actual like U.S. CIA diplomatic intervention where they're like, I think they even lock him away in like a building for a while <laughs> to shut him oh, the wow. fuck up. Uh, but yeah. It's uh, he. It's very funny that I don't think I have it open right now, but somewhere I have an excerpt from the CIA's profile of Sigmund Rhee, and basically their description of him is that they find him to both be incredibly stupid and incredibly petty and all this kind of shit and grasping. But then they're like, "But I mean, these are the best kind of people to, you know, have as your guy." <laughs> yeah like you know you know what i mean mean, like he's gonna be a pain because he's gonna say all sorts of shit you don't want him to say uh he might start a war uh but i mean you know he's easy to control you know what he wants um but sounds like macarthur except for that last part yeah yeah um yeah real question of which one was the bigger dumbass too but so this is the context for essentially what is going to happen in 1950, right? So in early 1950, North Korea calls for a Korea-wide election in a, about the, regarding the unification of Korea. Rhee dismisses this out of hand. The U.S. apparently discusses it in an internal conversation, but uh, officially dismisses it uh, because, of course, they would fucking lose, right? Yeah. Now, this is important because this is the five-year mark. So we're now five years into this occupation, okay? So 
both sides have waited out the supposed time before they have a referendum about unifying Korea, and the U.S. has now rejected that. So on June 25th, North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel into South Korea. On June 27th, the U.S. Has sho- uh, uh, shoves through a resolution through the U.N. Security Council approving military action in Korea. Now, Justin, you might have a question. Maybe some of our listeners have a question. The Security Council, every seat has a veto. We've already discussed that the U.S. has hilariously put the Chinese seat in charge of Taiwan, given it to Taiwan. So that's just a U.S. vote, right? Uh-huh. The British, I mean, British is Britain's little America. Let's be serious. So that's a U.S. vote as well. France at this time, again, occupied by the U.S. That's a U.S. vote as well. There's one seat on that Security Council that should have been able to get to do this in. You know, maybe uh, perhaps Russia. Yeah, the Soviet Union's on that goddamn Security Council. <laughs> so you're like, how the fuck does that get through? And this is where we talk about the wily coyote nature of Soviet diplomacy, uh, where they're constantly creating, devising schemes and then having them explode in their face, literally. Um, the Soviet Union was boycotting the UN at that time, so was not there to vote, because they were boycotting the U.S. refusing to give China a seat on the Security Council and giving the seat to Taiwan, and so declared the Security Council illegitimate <laughs> institution, and they were not going to recognize it by, they were not going to, they were not going to give it credence by being there. So this may be correct, it was illegitimate, <laughs> but maybe, maybe not the right move. Yeah, it's it's so funny because like this is the story of Soviet diplomacy, which is like the best of intentions, and you can kind of see where they're coming from. But how do you not see that that's going to blow up in your face, man? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and so they're not there. So this war is given the sort of you know imprimatur of the United Nations, right? So the organization designed to prevent a war, a world war from happening, uh, ostensibly. Uh, made to prevent war, period, right? The whole idea is that this is so nations can negotiate things amongst themselves. Uh, Five years into its existence, or less than five years into its existence, uh, is uh, backing a war that's, you know, the largest war of the second half of the 20th century. (laughs) Um, But was it actually called a a war in uh, the UN resolution? Because I know, like, domestically, like, Truman did not you know, get approval of Congress or anything. And it was just kind of referring to it as a police action. Yeah, it's a police action, right? So this is, again, this is one of the key elements of the post-Cold War or the post-World War II era, right? Nothing's ever a war anymore, right? It's a police action. And uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, World War II is the last thing that Congress actually voted on. Um, you know, ever since then... Uh, it's been the president who decides unilaterally whether we go to war or not. And everybody else, I guess we just go along. Um, I know from uh, McCullough, um, you know, Truman was actually like uh, Truman and his cabinet were kind of considering asking for uh, congressional approval on this war. But then they decided, no, 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 we don't want to create, you know, in this new Cold War era, we don't want to set the precedent that uh, we need to ask Congress for approval uh, for war. Goddamn. 
You gotta love it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the the imperial presidency, man. It's not just a theory; it's a fact. I mean, uh, the Cold War. There was already, you know, nations, particularly countries that are advanced and are engaged in imperial projects. They always pull power to the center, right? They they don't tend to operate as federal republics or whatever. Now, the United States has that appearance, right? And it certainly uses it to frustrate any effort at social reform. But, like, its power really is pretty centralized. And the imperial presidency is a big part of that. I mean, you know, like I said, we have engaged in wars since World War II. The U.S. has engaged in wars that have led to, like, the direct deaths of at least 10 million people. And not one of them was ever declared a war. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's it's really astonishing. And all of them were unilaterally declared by the president. Now, had he asked for, you know, a war vote from Congress, of course they would have given it to him. I mean, they might have there might have been some grandstanding or whatever, but they would have given it to him. Uh, but it is, you know, but that's that's not the point. I mean, as McCullough says, right? You know, is the conversations that Truman's having, that's their thing, is that like it's not about asking because we don't think we're going to get it. It's it's we don't want to establish that we have to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fucking amazing. So the U.S. argument for this is this fascinating argument that uh, it really is one of the things that you kind of have to think about for a second. But essentially, the U.S. was arguing that Koreans had invaded Korea which required a show of force from the U.S. and other Anglo powers in order to repel the nefarious invasion, again, of Korea Koreans into Korea, <laughs> right? Yeah. So. Internally, uh, Truman was calling Korea the Greece of the Far East in terms of, you know, like the, the danger of Korea, like, turning red. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Considering it like like this kind of like really the first you know concrete implementation of the Truman doctrine. Yeah, and it also establishes this you know again Cold War sort of narrative that the U.S. is always a defensive power, and that despite occupying everything, the U.S. is never an occupational power, right? So in this you know this the setup they have and this sort of uh you know logical sort of argument that truman's making it's a defensive war on the part of the united states now how could that be when you had to fly halfway across the world <laughs> and go into a country you had no relationship to prior you know five years prior to this and kill all of its inhabitants how is yeah. that a defensive war for you right but it's one of those things that we because it's slammed into your head so much you know, even though it doesn't make any sense on its face, people believe it, right? Um, you know, and it's the Vietnam War is the perfect example. I mean, nobody talks about the Korean War. So the Vietnam War is the perfect example of this, you know. I mean, the US had to be there to stop Vietnamese aggression. And it's like Vietnamese aggression against who? Well, the Vietnamese people. You know, the Vietnamese people had invaded Vietnam, so the US had to fight a defensive war there. And it's like this, the more you talk, the more it comes out of your mouth, the more it's like, wait, this doesn't make any fucking sense. This yeah. sounds like you occupied Vietnam and are, and are fighting its people who are trying to throw your ass out now. Um, which, of course, is exactly what was happening. Um, interestingly, Carter, so the U.S. had agreed to uh, reparations to Vietnam 
uh, in 75 as part of the Paris Accords. The U.S. agreed actually to, to pay out a significant amount of reparations to Vietnam and do things like remove landmines and things like that, which the U.S. had mined the shit out of fucking Vietnam yeah. Laos, and, uh, which, by the way, we never did. We refused to. And when Carter closed the book on ever doing that, right, when he basically said, like, look, we're never going to agree to do that, even though we already signed a agreement saying we would, uh, he basically said, you know, I think we can all agree that the Vietnam War was like to the mutual, uh, you know, end or the mutual de- you know, defeat of both countries. We both suffered equally. Oh, and God, so- Jimmy. <laughs> and it's like. Besides the fact of one country lost 2 million people and the other lost 50,000, um, there is the little issue of what were you doing in Vietnam in the first? Like there, The thing that was set up in Nuremberg, which is probably why we don't declare war in these cases too, is there was this precedent of the idea that the number one war crime is creating the war itself, right? The, the crime of invasion, right? Because as they said at Nuremberg, that's the crime from which all the other crimes come from right that's 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 the fact that's the head it makes total sense right and that probably is part of the reason why the u.s refuses to declare war on things too i mean it's a fairly uh it creates a fairly open and shut case of who the aggressor is and who the victims are if you do that so just call it a police action right yeah there's no police action uh crime trials yeah it's like when it muddies the waters of what's actually happening there who's actually doing what to who, right? So we can fight a defensive war in Afghanistan and nobody asks, like, what the fuck does that mean, you know? Well, uh, and referring to yourself as, uh, you know, the police means, like, you know, you are the lawful side and implies the other side is unlawful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it also helps to create that demonization that is required for the war too. I mean, how dare the nefarious Korean think that they can run their own country. Right. You know, uh, you know, that allows that it's now all of a sudden they're aggressors, you know, on their country (laughs) in their country. Right. Um, all right. So basically, so North Korea crosses the 38th parallel, right. And essentially the Korean war begins now. Yep. If you want a military history of the Korean War, I can give it to you in a few sentences. Uh, the U.S. gets its ass kicked all the way down the peninsula until it eventually has to leave entirely. Uh, it then, you know, reinvades Korea through a heroic land opera, uh, uh, sea landing operation from uh, designed by MacArthur, and it, you know, yeah, it was some sort of accomplishment. Uh, proceeds into North Korea. China intervenes, U.S. gets its ass kicked all the way back across the fucking, you know, peninsula, and then signs an armistice. Uh, If you need a battle history, that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's kind of amazing because, like, the you know the the People's Army army like quickly takes like Seoul and pushes you know the U.S. uh, and South Korean forces like back into this like tiny little region uh at the southern edge of korea called the the pusan perimeter uh you know the u.s getting the shit kicked out of it there's reports of uh this from mccullough uh guys sweat soaked shitting in their pants not even dropping them moving like zombies like you know (laughs) this, this, this was not going well um MacArthur is given uh, 
you know, uh, command over the U.S. Uh, you know forces in in uh, Korea, and they they do mount uh, when when they're kind of cornered in this little area in the southeast, I believe, of Korea. Yeah, they mount the the Incheon offensive, where they basically uh, they have to send ships. And uh, you know, also planes there, but like at the at the kind of perfect time where the tide is like just right, and it's a risky maneuver, and that kind of uh, it it turns the tide of the war a little bit. But then, uh, yeah, yeah, and it and in MacArthur's credit, I mean, it's it's a big deal. I mean, I think it's the second largest like uh, sort of uh, sea landing or whatever an army. I think like only D Day is bigger. Like it's it's. It's not an inconsiderable feat. So I guess if we're gonna give MacArthur any credit, credit where it's due. I mean, he got his ass kicked all the way down the peninsula to force him to have to do this. But uh, you know, this is part of his legend, right? Part of the the lure of him as a political figure is it's gonna go on, right? Yeah. And so, like right after um, you know the the Inchon offensive, uh, you know, MacArthur is like feeling himself. Truman is like uh, you know. Uh, you know, wants a little bit like MacArthur is way more popular than Truman. Uh, so Truman and MacArthur kind of plan this, uh, you know, political uh, meeting between the two of them where they ostensibly, you know, like uh, discuss the war, like how it's going, but also it's a little bit of, uh, you know, credibility for Truman. Um, and so MacArthur is kind of, uh, treated as like on equal footing as Truman as you know like mm-hmm. a administrator of a country uh Truman flies out to uh Wake Island uh you know in the middle of the Pacific uh pretty fairly close to where uh MacArthur is in in Japan but uh the subtext is like you know Truman has to go way out of the way to meet mm-hmm. MacArthur and yeah that's you know, not generally how this works right like uh yeah in a country where the civilian leadership is actually in charge the generals go to meet them right not the other way yeah. around <laughs> yeah yeah and so like MacArthur is uh you know is to quote at least at least to quote the McCullough book like a little bit disrespectful to uh to Truman you know like not I think not not greeting him initially uh refusing lunch with Truman saying like I gotta leave early fuck off I got work to do uh (laughs) and Truman just uh takes it and flies back to the U.S. after I think a meeting of only a few hours yeah and essentially what this is all building to uh, particularly once MacArthur starts getting his ass kicked again, uh, which is very shortly after his big triumph, uh, is he's going to lose his job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, a, and an act that really, I mean, it, especially given the spineless nature of the Democratic Party today, it's an act that would never happen today because it involves two things that would never happen. One, a U.S. general winning something and, you know, and being successful at anything enough to be popular. And two, yeah, Democratic president having the spine to fucking fire him, you know, be like, fuck, fuck off, get out of here. But it uh, took a while for yeah. for Truman to fire uh, 
MacArthur. And uh, it was after, you know, MacArthur said, like, he basically told Truman, like, you know, this, this war is going to be over in no time. We basically, like, won it now. And then he immediately gets his ass kicked uh, by the, you know, Chinese, you know, people's army that he hates so much. Um, yeah. And so, like, this kind of makes MacArthur kind of go off the, the deep end a little bit and he starts like talking about uh, you know wanting to bomb the shit out of uh, China uh, you know use nuclear weapons um, take the war like not just you know uh, you know not just uh, reclaiming territory and whatnot but to take the war like you know into the northernmost reaches of korea and even further in, into china uh and after you know being like <laughs> forbidden from doing this by truman like expressly like contradicting the state department like over and over again yeah yeah i mean macarthur starts to get a little uh big for his britches and i and he's literally having a fit in a lot of ways i mean what's interesting about macarthur is he is one of the actual many military officials who comes out and basically denounces the atomic bomb, right? And like the use of it in Japan. And he essentially calls it, I think he's one of the ones who calls it like, you know, that's barbarism essentially to use this, right? Cause mm -hmm. he's a man who is aware of his own mythology and it's, and it's creation. Right. And so for him, war is like this heroic act that he engaged in right now. Was it in reality? Of course not. But he's creating this myth, right? And there was no room in the myth for dropping a uh, scientific super weapon on a you know civilian city, right? Uh, it, it didn't, I don't think it rang right in his ears like it did for a lot of, uh, like a lot of military people, I think had that that issue with it. But it's kind of funny. All it took, that was when he was winning, right? It didn't ring yeah. right in his ears. All it took was him getting his ass handed to him a little bit. And next thing you know, he wants to drop hundreds of them. You know, like He's like, oh, did I say Hiroshima was bad? I want 100 Hiroshimas yeah. all in Korea. <laughs> like, And, uh, and it, I think it's actually, I think a big thing, which we'll get into this. We'll, we'll touch on this again here in a bit. But I think one of the things that was probably motivating, and this is sort of Bruce Cummings' argument, that motivated Truman's, one of many reasons, but one of the things motivating Truman's uh, firing of MacArthur was that he was becoming increasingly unreliable in a war that Truman was increasingly willing to go nuclear in. And yeah. the idea was like, okay, we're going to use nuclear weapons, but we can't have this guy in charge of them. Like, <laughs> you know, we, we got to have somebody uh, slightly less out of their fucking, somebody more reliable, basically. We need somebody who's going to drop them where I tell them to drop them, not, not just go off on a fucking thing, you know? Um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, Ridge, I think it's Ridgefield gets put in, put in charge over MacArthur. Um, even, even before MacArthur gets sacked. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of slowly demoted and then eventually, essentially fired, right? Uh, which he gives the world's most hilarious speech uh, on the, I believe on the Senate floor, right? It, it has some of the, I mean, we had to watch it in high school, the whole thing. And it's very boring, but Before it was a so, joint session of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. And he's has this hilarious line at the end where he's like, all like all good soldiers, you know, don't die. We just fade away. And then like a kids in the hall sketch, instead of ending on that line, which is clearly the end line, he's like fading away fading away and it's like get the fuck off the stage 
know, he's, just, he's addicted to it, man. He's addicted to the to the fucking, you know, uh, being this public persona, right? So even in his uh, fading away speech, he refuses to fade away. <laughs> but people, people liked it though. People ate that yeah. up. Like I think at around that time, Truman's popularity was like twenty percent. MacArthur's was like 69%. Like, uh, <laughs> nice, you know, very nice. MacArthur was drawing crowds for a while, uh, you know, around the country. Uh, when, Mac- when MacArthur made that speech, it was like a legit, like, uh, constitutional mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, all the Republicans were like showering MacArthur with praise. Um, and, uh, even four states passed resolutions, uh, condemning the firing of uh MacArthur. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And again, it's hard to understand this today because there's no equivalent like figure outside of the political system uh to these like World War II generals as far as having like broad political support and all this kind of stuff. Um it just doesn't exist today, right? Because the you know the US fucking doesn't win wars first off. Yeah. Uh, also the US is is I mean as much as we attempt to claim that we're the good guys and wars i don't think anybody in their heart of hearts actually believes it uh like especially not like they did during world war ii um so these figures just really don't exist anywhere there's no modern comparison uh to a general macarthur right like as far as his public persona and uh which makes it kind of interesting that the president just fucking fired him again this is this this absolute mediocre or whatever just like yeah fuck him he's out yeah (laughs) one of the funnier things about the truman administration i give him full support macarthur should have been fired earlier and it was funny that he fired yeah no truman (laughs) definitely sat on it for for a while he he sat on it it was 100 the right move on his part but yeah he should have done it earlier so let's talk a little bit about the the war itself so you know the question could be, you know, the U.S., the victors of, you know, one of the major victors of World War II had fought the Japanese in the Pacific and the Germans in, in uh, North Africa simultaneously. Um, you know, how is it that they find themselves getting their ass kicked all over the Korean Peninsula? And, you know, one of the things that we've already mentioned briefly, but is worth talking about is that one, the Korean, the formal North Korean military have been fighting for decades. Uh, when the Chinese army comes in, they had also been fighting war for decades. So these guys are not uh, wet behind the ears, don't know what they're doing, you know, people. Like, they, they've they been fighting wars, uh, some of the most brutal wars, too. I mean, the Japanese occupation of China is one of the most horrifying stories in, you know, human history. And the Chinese communists and the North Koreans were fighting them. So uh, they had a little experience. But the other other part of it was that the, you know, the Korean communists were the party of Korea. Like they were the only popular party. And they had huge networks going all the way through South Korea, including huge networks of people who had fought the Japanese as guerrilla fighters, as formal fighters and things like that. And so they were pretty much able to mobilize those wherever they went, right? So the U.S., it's it's the wrong way. It's just like with Vietnam. It's the wrong way to think about this as the U.S. was fighting North Korea. The U.S. was fighting Koreans on all sides, which is why they you know, spent a significant portion of the war bombing South Korea. Uh, just like in Vietnam, the U.S. dropped as many bombs on South Vietnam as they did on North Vietnam. And that only makes sense if you understand that 
the U.S. wasn't there to defend South Vietnam. They were there to kill Vietnamese people, right? Yeah. And Korea is, is in that same sort of vein. And, you know, I want to kind of get into talking about just how this war was fought because it, it one sets the table for the cold war and two it's never ever talked about and it has a lot of ramifications for where we are today which is the first part of the war is or the first part of the war that needs to be sort of discussed is this idea of a total war against the civilian population and what i mean by that isn't just indiscriminate bombings but the u.s and the rok forces engaged in mass civilian executions that had not been seen since the Japanese you know, occupation of China or the German occupation of Eastern Europe. Uh, just the retreat from Seoul alone, ROK forces, as they're retreating from you know the North Korean forces coming in, rounded up some 60,000 to 200,000 civilians, had them ex- you know, executed them and dumped them in mass graves. There's mass graves all over South Korea full of people. Okay. Um, a lot of this stuff, again, you know, the numbers are all, you know, sort of wishy-washy because all this information was suppressed for decades. It was only until North Korea, or, I'm sorry, it was only until uh, the 1990s when South Korea finally uh, had a single democratic election um, that uh, some of the stuff finally started to come to light. Uh, the North Koreans actually have been producing evidence of this for decades, but of course, we're not allowed to listen to them. Um, but turns out they were actually right on this uh but basically so during you know up to 200,000 people were essentially summarily executed in these essential mass murders uh as they moved south then once you know the invasion at Incheon the Incheon landing happened and they started to push into North Korea the US jumped in and ordered the American and ROK forces to quote liquidate the North Korean Labor Party and North Korean intelligence agencies. And to give you an idea of what that means, one third of all adults in North Korea were part of the North Korean Labor Party, were official card-carrying members of the North oh Korean God. Labor Party. So when you talk about liquidating them, you're talking about killing one third of the population of North Korea, which, by the way, the U.S. does in this war. That is, like this, yeah, that is a genocide. Yeah. Now... What they do for this is they create a series of concentration camps that are run just like the Nazi concentration camps were up until the enactment of the Final Solution, which means that people were literally worked to death on them. They weren't fed, they are were forced into hard labor, and they just died. Many of the survivors of the Cheju uprising, actually, who have been held in South Korean prisons are marched, you know, along with the army and you know, essentially pushed into forced labor for the military and are not fed and they just die as they go right and you know they're just dying in mass tens of thousands of people um there's official stories uh they initially came out from the north korean press so again we were told we're not allowed to listen to them or believe them it turns out they were all true that uh when the north koreans came back into pyongyang after retaking it from the u.s they found 26 civilian air raid shelters that were stuffed to the ceiling with executed civilians um only the Chinese intervention pushing the U.S. back across the 38th par- parallel stopped the killings. I mean, it really was a bloodbath, right? And this is not people killed in war. This is people rounded up and just summarily executed and dumped into mass graves. Um, and the thing is, if you ask what the U.S. role in this was, 
We know that U.S. advisors witnessed and sat there and watched a lot of these executions. We know from their own reports back to the uh, uh, War Department, which have, you know, gotten out in their own various ways, none of which were actually, you know, given to, you know, the U.S. has attempted to classify all this, but it's it's gotten out in its own various ways. Um, we also know that they provided aid by, like, running the bulldozers and stuff to push the bodies into the graves. Um, to the extent that the U.S. probably participated in these huge massacres, uh, we'll just throw our hands up there and go, eh, <laughs> probably. Yeah. There's lots of stories, um, you know. Lots of eyewitness reports. Uh, we don't know for, we don't have facts, but we you know pretty good indications. They probably did on mass levels. Um, there's also the North Koreans have always alleged, as have the Chinese, that the U.S. used biological weapons and chemical weapons in this war. We know for a fact that the U.S. did use chemical weapons against North Korea. Uh, the biological weapons, the U.S. has always denied. Uh, but the U.S. did reconstitute the Japanese biological weapons uh, program, and a lot of those units were fighting in the Korean War. And, I mean, I got to tell you, if I had to guess who's probably right on this, probably North Korea again. Probably the U.S. was using biological weapons in mm-hmm. North Korea. Um, so far, all the North Korean accusations have proven to be true about you know, the Korean War. Uh, it's taken 50 years to find it out, but it's they've so far turned out to be true so i I would guess the biological weapons thing is probably true too um so along with the civilian massacres there was also the nuclear war element of it which you know nobody really understands how close the u.s was to essentially going into a full-scale uh nuclear war at the time so after the chinese enter the war in october of 1950 truman publicly states that you know to the press that he's open to using all weapons in Korea to put a That was a big scandal, by the way. There were like yeah. articles in the, the paper saying like Truman open to using atomic bombs. Like, so it wasn't, I guess, yeah, it wasn't just MacArthur uh, mm-hmm. that was saying stuff like that. Although MacArthur was a lot more uh, blunt about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and specifically, MacArthur basically proposes uh, both apparently to the War Department and to Truman that uh but also like essentially leaks to the press this plan that he has that he wants to drop between 50 and 80 nuclear weapons along the 38th parallel and along the korea china border to essentially create a permanent uninhabitable zone of like radiation yeah. and destruction um as well as then he starts suggesting that maybe we should just drop some of those bombs in china as well so this is the guy who called you know, the bombing of Hiroshima a barbaric act. This is his suggestion now that he's had a, a little taste of getting his ass kicked across the peninsula. Yeah. Uh, um, by the way, he when MacArthur proposes this, the Truman administration is like, all right, shut the fuck up. That's, you know, that's fucking crazy shit. Like, also, guaranteeing a war with the Soviet Union at that point, right? I mean, there would be nothing they could do other than go nuclear against the U.S., right? Um, but hilariously just in this like everything is that's old is new again uh macarthur's like plea to you know 
this nuclear plan that he has for Korea gets taken up in Congress by a uh, representative from Tennessee named Albert Gore, who becomes this becomes this big uh, advocate for this on the floor, who, of course, his uh, son would go on to lose a hilarious layup election in 2000. If only uh, his son had won, everything would have been better. Our society would be so great right now. Yeah, yeah, with that, that's coming from that stock, right? Yeah. Uh, I, had a fr- I had a friend that I knew in college who was uh, one of my professor's husbands who had gone to Harvard and had apparently eaten dinner with Al Gore every week for you know i think two years he said because harvard has this weird thing where you have houses and you have to like have a formal dinner with members of your house yeah. <laughs> you know and all this kind of shit and he said he completely forgot that he knew al gore all the way up until the point that al gore ran for president and he's like oh he's like and then i just remembered seeing him at the end of the table and i was like he looked like a you know, back then he was this appalachian hillbilly like faux appalachian hillbilly at the end of the table <laughs> and just zero charisma even then um but yeah but from a political dynasty so i guess we have to fucking live with them forever right um so in january of 51 the military begins running test flights dropping dummy bombs in preparation for the use of nuclear weapons on the peninsula right so they're flying over uh north korea essentially dropping these test bombs to try and figure out like how they're gonna land and all this kind of stuff right so they're doing the which by the way they also did in japan but in Japan, of course, they didn't know what was coming. Uh, in Korea, it's pretty they're they're pretty sure they know what's going on, right? You know, oh, so, in, yeah. in in McCullough, you know, he claims that Truman, the Truman administration was never seriously considering, you know, dropping atomic bombs except on a large dam that conventional bombs, you know, couldn't blow up. Yeah, they end up blowing that dam up with conventional bombs, and he definitely was. So we'll, we'll get to this in a second. <laughs> that dam, the the dam they blew up too, is. Uh, I mean, we'll get into the the discussion over bombing that dam, which was an absolute fucking war crime. But, um, you know, part of dropping the dummy bombs too, uh, you know, you could imagine being a North Korean soldier, or civilian, or whatever in Pyongyang. And looking up as this like single plane flies over, because at this point the U.S. has total air dominance, right? So as the single plane falls flies over, and instead of being carpet bombed, which is what's normally happening, just one fucking bomb falls out of it. And then having to sit there and think, is this the one? Yeah. You know, I mean, the psychological. I mean, this is as much about psychological terror as it is about anything, right? So. You know, they start dropping, they start doing these test runs and dropping dummy bombs. Uh, In April of 51, Truman releases nine nuclear weapons for use on on Korean and Chinese targets. So, you know, the way the nuclear arsenal works is the president has to essentially release the weapons to the military to use, right? So he releases these weapons to be used on Korean and Chinese targets, and they are transported to South Korea. And essentially what happens is, is that this is happening simultaneously with all the chaos around MacArthur, right? And firing fucking MacArthur and all the shit going on. And because this happens simultaneously, essentially the it, during the like changeover of the military command in Asia, they just forget, the, they just don't realize or forget or something that they have these weapons. But Truman at this point, has signed them over, which means that it's totally up to the generals on whether or not they want to drop them. And we've already heard from MacArthur. We know what their position is. 
So yeah, it's amazing that there wasn't a nuclear war. Uh, we are lucky that MacArthur was kind of a, a fuck up at this point. Yeah, and when that he basically created so much chaos on his way out, yeah. essentially that this didn't happen because it is. I mean, he basically gave the full green light, and it's a total accident of history that they weren't dropped, uh, but they they were there and ready. Um. So more horrifying than the civilian massacres, more horrifying than the fact that we were uh, a bunch of generals just getting in a little hand slapping fight amongst themselves and forgetting that they had a bunch of nuclear weapons signed over to them. Uh, was the air war of, of, you know, over Korea. Right. And the air war destroyed every standing structure in North and South Korea and that's not hyperbole. That's literally what the War Department told uh, Truman, right? And when they were trying to find targets to use the nuclear weapons on, one of the problems the War Department told Truman about was there's literally nothing left to destroy. Like, we've destroyed everything. So, you know, like, we'll use them, but, you know, just know that. <laughs> like, you're not going to get a Hiroshima-style event here. Uh, everything's gone. Um. In the discussing in the discussion of bombing civilian dams, including the one that we were just talking about, the there's a one big major dam in North Korea. In the discussion of bombing it, uh, the military wrote uh, the War Department wrote to the president or to the administration, "quote the westerner the westerner can little conceive the awesome meaning which the loss of rice has for the Asian. It means starvation and slow death." And so what they're talking about is by bombing this dam, they were flooding the entire rice-growing region of North Korea and a huge section of the rice-growing region of South Korea, which would inevitably lead to mass starvation. and like I mean, siege warfare. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was basically going to flood these areas and completely destroy them. It would mean also they couldn't be reconstituted very you know, like, you know, <laughs> it's not like, oh, they destroyed the farm, better build a new one. Like, that shit ain't happening either, right? Yeah. Uh, and it did lead to the deaths of untold, you know, tens, hundreds, and thousands of people, right? Um, so a journalist traveling uh, with Chinese forces in 1951 described the landscape, quote, Everything which moved in North Korea was a military target. There were no more cities in North Korea. Every city was a collection of chimneys. I don't know why houses collapsed and chimneys did not. But I went through a city of 200,000 inhabitants, and all I saw was thousands of chimneys, and that was all. Uh, Curtis LeMay, the guy who, you know, uh, popularized firebombing Japan, and uh, uh, he, he was quoted on this, uh, quote, Over a period of three years or so, we burned down every town in North Korea and South Korea, too. Um, so part of this is this air war, I mean, just killed untold hundreds of thousands of people right and it was a just completely uh relentless civilian killing machine essentially uh but one of the things it did too was it created you know i mean to give credit to the north koreans they essentially built whole underground cities because of this you know uh and it created this real siege mentality which i think is going to maybe uh pop up again <laughs> in north korea later um so as we talked about earlier, the 
you know, Chinese enter the war, they kick the U.S. back across the 38th parallel. Uh, once the U.S. has been kicked back across the 38th parallel, they all of a sudden decide that there's a certain sanctity to the 38th parallel again that has to be recognized. Interesting how that works. Uh, so on July 27, 1953, the DPRK, so North Korea, China, and the U.S. all sign an armistice agreement ending hostilities on the peninsula. Notice it is not a peace <laughs> agreement or agreement yeah. to end uh, the war. It's just to end the shooting. Uh, South Korea famously refuses to sign the armistice. Um, the agreement establishes the demilitarized zone along the 38th parallel and sets in stone the state of affairs in Korea that we have to this day. Now, the ultimate sort of impact of this war, this four-year-long war on the peninsula, was that 3 million North Koreans were killed, 1 million South Koreans were killed, and it's unknown, but potentially up to a million Chinese are killed during the war. Uh, the vast majority of the dead uh, on the Korean side are all civilians. The U.S. killed one-third of the population of North Korea, and I believe it killed one in eight of uh, South Korea, the population of South Korea. Um, it's essentially nothing short of a genocide. Yeah. A war crime on par with anything Nazi Germany did with anything Japan did in China. I mean, one of the great war crimes of human history. I mean, it, that, that one in three number, by the way, that is, nobody disputes that. <laughs> like, as far, no serious story or anything disputes that the U.S. killed one out of every three people. I mean, imagine the fucking effect that has on a population. Yeah, that is jaw-dropping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you're a listener, you listen to that and you're trying to understand how that works, uh, go find two people on the street and then imagine one of you is definitely dead. <laughs> All right. See how many times you want to roll the dice on that one. Um, so that was the Korean War. <laughs> I think it. I think the Korean War is really important one because nobody ever talks about it or anything like that. But a lot of what it does is it sets up what the Cold War is going to be about, I think, in my mind at least, which is the Cold War is, one, an ideological war that exists outside of the countries that it's fought in, right? So whether or not the Greeks, you know, are pro-communist or pro-capitalist really doesn't matter. Uh, that's the war that's going to be fought in Greece, right, in the case of the Greek Civil War uh, or in the case of the Korean War. Yeah, ignoring like the actual like sovereignty of the country yeah. and just fighting these proxy wars. Yeah, and the other part of it is, and um, uh, I think uh, was it Daniel Bassner or whatever? I think he just had a book that came out where he kind of makes this argument: is that essentially what you're seeing is an international war on the part of sort of the American ruling class of, on the side of American imperialism essentially against the populations of the world, right? These wars in Korea and Vietnam really are aimed at the civilian population more so than anything else. And and that is from every... That's why I like to point out the thing about the, the execution of civilians as they retreat uh, from Seoul is that there's no part of the war where they didn't prioritize killing civilians. So it's not a reaction to anything. It's it's the point. Um we see the same thing in Indonesia, where the U.S. backs a 
uh, you know, genocidal campaign in Indonesia that probably killed a million people. Um, it that the Cold War really is, from the West perspective, about killing civilians, you know, uh, and just churning them in the fucking meat grinder. I mean, even like softer, quote unquote, softer solutions like, uh, you know, sanctions. I mean, those are designed to, you know, hurt the civilian population of a country. Yeah, I mean, it really carries over because, you know, you look at things in sort of Reagan's 80s or whatever. uh, You know, one of the hallmarks of the death, the American death squads in like Nicaragua and El Salvador is that they would never fight the like actual armed forces like they would never fight uh the you know fmln or you know anything like that their whole deal was they would only kill civilians and then when the actual like armed forces left showed up they'd run away and there's a weird carryover to that because by the time we get to iraq in the 90s you know as horrifying as the gulf war was with its i mean you know the u.s probably killed fucking 200,000 iraqis in the gulf war as horrifying as that was, it was Clinton's sanctions in the 90s killed probably a million people in Iraq. You know, at one point, uh, they they uh, ask um, uh, Clinton's secretary of state, was Madeleine Albright, they asked Madeleine Albright, uh, you know, your sanctions in Iraq have killed half a million children. Like, what, is, you know, what is that? You know, she gets asked this, I think, on 2020 or something. Like, it killed half a million children. Like, you know, what do you say to that? And her response was, well, we think it's worth the the price, you know? And it's crazy because you could say, well, of course, the death squads have to kill the civilians in El Salvador and, and Nicaragua. They're they're Marxists, right? They got to they gotta be taught, you know, just like in Vietnam and Korea. But there was no Marxists in Iraq, you know? Like, yeah. there's no communists in Iraq. Like, there's no, like... So why'd you kill those people, you know? And I think it just had been ingrained that that's what war is by then, right? But, yeah, what a... Jesus Christ. Fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, and I think some of these legacies, if you think about the... We talked about how the reason why this episode was going to be so goddamn long was that this all sets up everything, you know, in the post-World War II era. But the occupation of Korea, right? If you know this about the Korean War, if you know this history of the Korean War, all of a sudden the occupation of South Korea and a lot of, like, the weird things that we consider strange about North Korea make way more fucking sense. Like, why did North Korea become this weird siege state that's obsessed with the military and is, like, dug in, like, ticks and demands this, you know, sort of, like, a military-like discipline from its entire population? And it's like, well, if you lived through a war where one-third of your population was just relentlessly fucking murdered and the, like, country that did that to you still occupies half of the peninsula and is constantly threatening to kill you all the time. Like maybe this is the kind of society you make. And still conducting, uh, you know, those weapons trials, like, you know, yeah. right across like uh, a few miles away. Yeah. The U S constantly 
uh, does mock invasions of North Korea. I mean, it, it's always funny when people portray North Korea as the again the aggressors in this whole relationship. And it's like, you know, one of those country one of those countries is where they're supposed to be, you know, right? But the U.S. is constantly engaging in what they call war games, but are really just mock invasions of North Korea. And what they're doing is they're testing North Korean defenses. They're seeing what the North Koreans will do if we take, you know elements of our nuclear uh you know bombing force right if we take b2 bombers and we start flying them right up to the border of the 38th parallel and turning around at the last second let's see what the response to that is like how yeah. fast are their radar picking it up right uh are they moving their you know anti-aircraft batteries as we fly up to it right you know that kind of probing and stuff is only meant to insinuate that you're want to go to war Right, you know, or that you could at any second, right, to to keep the tensions high. The threat um, of it, yeah, yeah, and I and I think the, you know, a lot of what is uh, bizarre or awful about North Korea is fully explainable within this sort of context. And whatever the North Korean state could have been at any one point without the U.S. intervention, uh, I think it's undeniable that what it is is a product of the of the U.S. intervention. Um, you know, you can argue all day counterfactuals about whether it would always become like that, but I, I think that's foolish. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, hundred percent. Uh, the U.S. war with—I mean, it's kind of interesting too for a country that had been occupied for so long by the Japanese. The U.S. war with North Korea is like the foundational, like text of North Korean civil life and political life. Uh, it's the you know it's the Jews uh, leave it's Exodus uh, for North Korea essentially like it's 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 it literally is the center of their political life uh, to show what kind of trauma it was on the country. On the same token, South Korea is now occupied. We're actually at a lull right now, but South Korea is occupied by thirty thousand U.S. troops. Uh, we interfere in their political system constantly, all the way up to this day. We had military dictators that we backed and installed there for decades um you know all sorts of horrifying crimes in south korea after the korean war people disappearing things like that um the fact that in the 1970s when it finally started to come to light the like japanese role and you know the what they called the comfort women scandal um people in south korea started to point out well you know, comfort women that were recreated, you know, repatriated from, you know, uh, Japan and China back to South Korea, all wound up because they're banned from all employment and shunned, all wound up in brothels that served U.S. military bases. Isn't that weird? What a huh. weird thing, you know? And in the 70s, Park Chung-hee even commented that he couldn't shut down the uh, brothel system because it was just too important for like getting uh, foreign currency for their foreign currency reserves but I mean so even in South Korea there's these like horrifying deformations that have happened to the, the country because of our presence there and as an American you have to ask why the fuck are we there yeah uh, like, I mean, also you know we, we have military bases in uh, you know South Korea and several other places, you know, along the Pacific, and that's all part of our strategy to contain, like, China. It's no coincidence that we have all these military bases. 
Yeah, I mean, we have so we have fifty four thousand troops in Japan, uh, more than half of which are located on one small island, uh, Okinawa, which again, you know, if we're looking at sort of how this this post or this Cold War era, you know, kind of created our current era, you know, the U.S. has again always interfered in Japanese politics. Um, you know, as far as why is why are all these people jammed onto Okinawa? You know, Okinawa is not part of the sort of Japanese national identity. Like it was a it was an imperial conquest from I believe the 19th century, so a fairly recent imperial conquest. And one of the things that we've done, because everywhere that the U.S. occupies, there's there's tension there. Like civilians don't tend to like that, right? So in South Korea, there's constant demonstrations against the U.S. occupation. In Japan, there's also has historically been demonstrations against the occupation. And one of the like release valves of that is we've made agreements with the Japanese government to slowly move that occupation onto Okinawa. Now, of course, the Okinawans fucking hate it, too. But according to the Japanese government, uh, fuck them, you know, (laughs) you know, like they can eat shit. Right. So you guys deal with it. And, you know, one of the things that comes from this occupation is that the U.S., because we're an occupying army, we have what's called a status of forces agreement, which is this, you know, phony ass fucking agreement we go into with governments that we fucking fully control. <laughs> but it essentially creates a sense of lawlessness around these military bases where, you know, people get killed, right? Sometimes accidentally, sometimes a convoy like happened in uh, South Korea, I believe two or three years ago, but it's happened off and on all the time. A convoy runs over somebody in the middle of the fucking street and then makes its way to U.S. military base. And then when, you know, the family says, hey, we want the person who ran our kid over to fucking see some sort of justice, the U.S. military raises their hands and go, oh, I don't know what to tell you. Tough luck. <laughs> you know? I'm not sure who that was. Could have been anybody. Yep. Yeah. Fuck off. You know, they don't even do that. They just tell them to fuck off. They're like, nope, sorry. You're not in control of us. I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, it's, it's much the, it's much the same as the impunity that police have here, right? Where their general response seems to be, uh, we have the guns and stuff. So yeah, fuck off. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, he, you know, they killed George Floyd. What are you going to do about it? You know? Um, and it leads to rage in a lot of these countries. And there's been, huge uprisings in South Korean stuff. There was one actually in, I believe it was in 1980 in South Korea that led to the death of thousands, uh, the uh, uprising against the occupation and against, you know, the puppet rulers that the U S has in uh, South Korea. And, uh, you know, the ROK with the U S, you know, agree, you know, the U S, uh, you know, stamp of approval, uh, you know, brought soldiers in and just fucking massacred people. I think they killed 5,000 people in this uh, civilian massacre that, by the way, is like just now, I think just this year, they started a truth and reconciliation uh, committee to like actually look into this massacre. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, you know, that is also the fruit of the occupation. Right. And yeah, you know, you're exactly right. Like, why do we have all these soldiers in South Korea and Japan? It's like because of China, you know, it's because of the Soviet Union at one point and because of China and then both at various points. But uh, the U.S. occupies South Korea. The occupation of South Korea has nothing to do with North Korea. Like as much as we like to talk about it, North Korea is just the very convenient foil that we use to justify it. It's all about China. 
it's just a it's a place for bombers to take off from to attack China, just like Japan is. Um, right. I mean, yeah, because I mean, North Korea does not pose like any threat to the U.S. Really. When I think, I mean, it's kind of funny. You know, it's hard to say. I I think for a lot of historians, there's a broad agreement that if that the U.S. is the problem as far as reunification in um, the peninsula goes, and that if the U.S. just left, uh, that actually both sides are reaching out to each other and want to reunify. And while it certainly would be rocky, uh, it wouldn't be a war. Like that, the idea that if the U.S. left, the North would invade is insane. Like nobody believes that. Um, yeah. At the same time, in our Defense Department, I think some of those people do believe that because they are genuinely incredibly stupid. Uh, in one of his books, Bruce Cummings talks about in the nineties, uh, the, uh, I think you see the defense department intelligence agency, or maybe it was even the CIA had released this giant report on North Korean society, right? That was supposed to be like a real rundown of like the, the, the sort of status of forces in, in North Korea, like where, you know, how many soldiers they got, what's, you know, like what's the economy's output, right? Like essentially the stuff that you do before you want to go to war with somebody. And Bruce Cummings, like, he's like, you know, when you read through it, he's like, as somebody who studies Korea, it's, it's insane because they seem to only know the name of like three Korean, <laughs> North Korean politicians. Like they misspell their names. Con- it would be like if you wrote a, uh, like a whole, you know, serious work on the status of uh, the United States, right? And you only knew the name of Joe Biden and Donald Trump and you misspelled both their names and didn't seem to know like what their actual job was in the U S government. <laughs> like, you know, he was basically saying it was like, it was like astonish, astonishingly ignorant, even for like the CIA, like just astonishingly stupid. Um, you know, and so it, it's kind of hard to say like how much of uh, U S policy Korea is, is based off of imperial calculus, which is clearly against China at this point, which clearly is, and how much of it is based off of pure stupidity, which there seems to be that too. Um, but it's it's pretty astonishing. Um, little from column A, little from column B. Yeah, you know, and I think you could probably make an argument that imperialism really requires both, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, Another like fun fact is that there's 38,000 American troops in Germany right now, which probably not a lot of people think about. I didn't know that, no. Yeah, and it's, you know, when you talk about occupying armies, I mean, what do you do if you're a country and you're trying to exercise independence and another country has 38,000 troops there? Right? I mean, how does that work? You're going to think twice about uh, running the Reds. Yeah, right. And I mean, and Germany had uh, Germany actually had a really big anti-nuclear movement in the 70s and 80s. And sometimes it gets mischaracterized as being against uh, nuclear power, which there was certainly an element in that. But the real thrust of it was they wanted the U.S. to take its nuclear weapons out of Germany. <laughs> you know, They're like, get your fucking weapons out of here. You know, why are you making us the target? Which, by the way, was explicit U.S. Cold War policy was we should put a bunch of troops in like uh, Germany and a bunch of weapons there. So if we do fight the Soviet Union. We fight them on somebody else's soil, not ours. Right. <laughs> to try and put the casualties as much into Western Europe as possible and as much out of the United States as possible. But um, 
you know, that that does not escape. Well, that escapes the attention of the average American. That did not escape the attention of the average German who was like, why the fuck are we the uh, you know, front line of your dumb war? You know, that, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, though. I knew I knew Germany like shut down a bunch of their nuclear plants. I didn't know it was it was tied to that. Yeah, yeah, that was like the roots of it. And yeah, and th- now they actually have like a fairly robust anti-nuclear on all levels uh, movement. And that was sort of yeah. origin. Uh, in the 80s, too, the U.S. actually had a large anti-nuclear movement in the 80s, too, that it's always had that two, those two components, right, which is anti-nuclear power. But it, at, in the 70s, 80s, also had a very large component that was anti-nuclear weapons and calling for disarmament. Uh, to the point that Reagan actually signed a disarmament treaty with the Soviet Union to try and trim down the numbers of nuclear weapons. I mean, Reagan didn't do that because he was a peacenik. He did it because I mean, it was a, a wildly popular uh, thing to do. Um, but yeah, again, all that painted as uh, agents of the Kremlin and all this kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, all that stuff existed. And the anti-nuclear power stuff, I mean, it, now we we paint it as some sort of anti-science thing. But again, if you go look at the anti-nuclear movement in the 80s, uh, one of the things they argue about nuclear power, which I think is 100% true, is that uh, arguments for nuclear power and nuclear power plants are really just covert ways of developing nuclear weapons and hiding your nuclear weapons program just in a nuclear power budget, which, uh, by the way, the U.S. like does. The nuclear weapons program is in the Department of Energy budget. Uh, right. And I mean, that's why we accuse, you know, countries like, uh, you know, Iran and like, you know, mm-hmm. other countries of doing when North they, Korea, uh, most famously. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was going to say North Korea. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're developing nuclear power plants, but also we have great suspicion that, uh, you know, they're going to arm themselves with nuclear weapons. We got to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and nuclear proliferation is another sort of element of this time period. I mean, you know, the U.S. went into full panic about the Soviet Union having a bomb. And the U.S. aided, you know, to what degree, we don't know the full extent, but aided the British in developing their own nuclear weapons. Um, we know that the U.S. essentially gave nuclear weapons to Israel. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's one of those open yeah, one of those open secrets you're not allowed to, you know, say, but I mean, I don't think anybody seriously disputes it. Uh, and it's also, I mean, one of the stories that nobody really knows about, uh, but, you know, there was a book written about about five years ago, but South Africa, apartheid South Africa was building a nuclear weapon with the aid of Israel. And they actually might have tested one. There's there's a, a fairly, you know, convincing theory that they might have even tested one. Um, but again, we don't know the the role in which the U S played in that whole thing, but it's not, you know, out of the question, South Africa, the U S was South Africa's biggest ally internationally. And the U S uses Israel as a conduit for weapons all the time. Right. Like that's the Israel's the U S middleman for sending weapons to places. We're not supposed to be sending weapons to, and you know, whether or not we were trying to give South Africa or apartheid South Africa a nuclear weapon, it's an open question. It's the answer is not a definite no. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Pakistani nuclear weapon is probably the product of U.S. Prolifer- uh, pro- proliferation. Um, you know, it, it, it's not good. If, it, if you don't want to die in a, a, a fucking nuclear winter, uh, the U.S. influence on nuclear weapons has not been positive. 
uh, around the world. No. Um, did we did we touch on when we were talking about uh, the Korean War, the expansion of the military budget? No, I mean, that's the other big part of it, too. I mean, so, you know, uh, we we talked about, you know, we mentioned earlier, right, that previously, whenever a war would end, the military budget would shrink, right? Because, uh, you know, this is also why we used to call the Defense Department the War Department, right? Is that yeah. well, we're not in a war, so why buy all this shit, right? You know, like, why have all this shit around? And, you know, there is this really brief period between World War II and the Korean War where it does look like that might happen again. Like, you know, the budgets kind of shrink a little bit. People are allowed to go home, you know, the, and the Korean war blows all that out of the water and it never goes down again. <laughs> like the budget yeah. never goes down again. So I have it in my notes that uh, Truman and Atchison, the secretary of state made an emergency appropriation of 10 billion at one point. So like doubling the yearly military budget. And then eventually, uh, it would go up to fifty billion. Um, so yeah, I mean, un- yeah, at that point, like huge amounts of uh, military spending, and it's yeah, I mean, the budget is going up and up like every year. It seems like yeah, because we roll from Korea right into Vietnam, right for twenty years of just increased spending in Vietnam. At one point, hilariously, uh, the U.S. is dropping so many bombs in Vietnam that we actually just run out of bombs and we go to Germany who has a bunch of scrap metal, uh, basically from the war and shit like that. And, uh, we basically go to West Germany and, uh, buy, uh, the scrap metal to make the bombs, right? Because we're essentially running out of the material because we're dropping them so fast. And hilariously, West Germany, having fully imbibed all our lessons on capitalism, uh, sells the metal back to us at like five times its value, <laughs> which is a little funny getting one on, getting one over on us. Uh, yeah, I mean, hilariously, too, uh, there's this thing called the Bretton Woods Agreement that we do that the U.S. essentially crafts after the war, which is like a monetary policy for the you know Western world, essentially. And it basically it pegs the u.s dollar to a certain value of gold right so it pegs the dollar to gold and then it tells countries you know look you can either choose to have a gold reserve or you can use the u.s dollar as your gold reserve right and so certain countries even just accept the dollar as a currency right but a lot of countries are using it essentially in their uh as like the reserve currency right this is how the the dollar becomes the reserve currency of the world right it's also the reason why we can run up debts forever and you know nobody can really do anything about it but mm-hmm. hilariously uh during the vietnam war we're spending so much on the military that's actually starting to create this sort of economic crisis it's creating this fl- inflationary cycle which happens whenever you try and tie your currency to a commodity like gold because currencies and gold don't have a relationship right um so we're in this inflationary crisis and so hilariously, because we've set in stone, no, uh, you know, I think it was an ounce of gold was worth $28 or something like that was the, the set or what we'd set it at. France gets real fucking smart and says, all right, we want to cash in our U.S. foreign reserves or dollars. We want those as gold now. <laughs> and there's actually these stories that there was a gold ship that the U.S. just loaded with fucking gold and sent to France, and Nixon lost his fucking mind and ended the gold standard. Like it's like, what the fuck are we doing? 
<laughs> that's not how this works you idiots like you don't actually send them the gold <laughs> um, but yeah Amazing. but yeah um yeah like you're saying the budgets just go up and up and up and what ends up happening is the military becomes the engine of the economy right so like the economy moves because the military is spending money like it, it really does become like the the main motive force i mean it's why the u.s is the biggest weapons producer in the world i mean well, yeah all these private companies like uh you know raytheon uh halliburton etc like boeing. Uh, yeah maybe, yeah <laughs> boeing making billions and billions of dollars and even if uh you know you participate in your company's like 401k you know you put a couple bucks into there like some of that money is going straight into the military industrial complex like you have no control over it yeah and it really is like the region the wealth of like this the pacific northwest like the wealth in this region I mean, whether people want to admit it or not, is tied to the military, like inextricably. Uh-huh. You know, if you look at a lot of the wealthier areas of the country, they're generally tied to two things, which is either finance or the military. And uh, on the West Coast, it's pretty much all military. San um, Diego, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And basically, the whole Southern California, like economic post war miracle, is the defense industry, which is why the like psychotic uh turn the sunbelt turn in politics in the 60s and 70s uh even though it it is sort of marked and constituted by the south switching from the democratic party to the republican party its actual birthplace is california that's where goldwater's from it's where reagan's from and it's because of that military industry (laughs) In, in in LA, essentially in Southern California, that's completely reshaped the politics of that Even, area. I, well, I, I'm from uh, California originally, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just seeing places I've lived. I mean, San Diego has these uh, defense companies. Uh, even a little town like uh, Santa Barbara, like Santa Barbara has like uh, has or used to have like a big Raytheon, you know, office even like you know even little defense companies like FLIR I mean they're they're like everywhere in Southern California well yeah there's there's I mean to show the extent to which that like thoroughly permeated every aspect of life there is an episode of my favorite show as a kid Saved by the Bell where of course they're in an LA school you know um where Kelly Kapowski is not able to go to the prom with Zach because uh her dad gets laid off so they can't afford a dress or whatever. And the dad breaks the news to her by saying, uh, Kelly, I have bad news. You know, world peace broke out. And she says, well, how's that bad? And he goes, well, it's bad if you work in the defense industry. (laughs) So in this very dumb throwaway show, but I mean, that shows like the extent to which the defense industry was so so thoroughly tied in people's minds to the area, right? You know, even this dumb show with these lazy ass writers, they fucking were like, well, yeah, of course, that's the joke, you know? But yeah, and it is kind of funny. There is this thing that uh, we t- you, you we just barely briefly mentioned Eisenhower, but there's this thing that a certain type of progressive loves about Dwight Eisenhower, which of course is his speech as he leaves office, 
and uh, warns us about the defense industrial complex, which is where we get the, the military industrial oh, sorry, complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I'm going to get crucified. But the military <laughs> industrial complex, and it's where we get the whole just add industrial complex at the end of anything fucking shit, which I really don't like. But um, I kind of like it, to be honest. You know, like it, I'll say a nonprofit industrial complex. It has a certain explanatory value. I mean, I guess I like it in that it has an inherent negative connotation. Yeah. <laughs> which is useful at times. But uh, it, it kind of, you know, it's it, like anything, it, it sometimes conceals more than it uh, illuminates. But the sure. it's just so funny from Eisenhower, uh, this guy who was president for eight years, to basically be like, uh, hey, got to watch out for this uh, military industrial complex uh, that I built up for eight years. By the way, peace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't do these things that I did. Yeah, exactly. Which, of course, that advice is really heated, which is, you know, but I mean, part of it, too, is, you know, the military budget is a big reason, or at least one of the excuses. I won't give it the the uh, credit of reason, but it's one of the great excuses for why we can't have like social democracy, right? Where we can't have social goods uh, all the way back to Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam war. He basically starts putting the brakes on great society programs because the Vietnam war costs too much. It's yeah. Like, you know, we got to spend on the military. We don't got money for it. And that has been the rallying cry since then of why we can't have nice things. Right. It's just no money. Sorry. With the subtext being because the military it costs too much. Sorry. That's it. Remember when even like Bernie tried to cut the military budget 10% and that mm -hmm. was like a huge no-go. You just couldn't do it. Yeah. And the thing was that 10% he was going to cut was like, it was only what the military budget had increased since like 2008. Like not even going back to like Bush, right? It was like from the Obama administration because it only goes up, right? And so if you cut 10%, it's like, oh, we're just going to have to go back to 2008 levels. What a what a shame. You know, like instead, my my very own congressman Adam Smith uh, just <laughs> expanded the budget and gave Trump a space force. So you know that's that's the thing. Now. Yeah, when you name your kid Adam Smith, is what you're asking for, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know that that military budget has become like the, just the absolute death knell of any like, at least through formal channels, any sort of progressive i guess you want to call it legislation is killed by that fucking budget and i i legitimately don't think you can simultaneously have the empire that demands that budget and uh social democracy i don't know that those two things are compatible uh for that very reason um that's the whole discussion yeah yeah but the so some of the other interesting things to come out of this too is you know I mean, one, when we talk about the growth of the military, like, you know, one, that means that we have now an out-of-control weapons industry. So if you want to know why the cops are armed to the teeth, I mean, one answer is that uh, they're there to put down the working class, which is very true. Another answer is the military is giving them weapons, which is also very true. And a third answer, which is also very true that nobody ever talks about, is we overproduce, like anything, we have a crisis of overproduction in our weapons industry. And some of that we ship abroad and we dump abroad, right? Uh, some of it we sell locally, which is why it's the real reason why you can buy a machine gun in America, right? Is because that we have them to sell, we make them to sell. Yeah. And it's also why the police, I mean, that those are very lucrative and uh, contracts you can count on, right? That go to the defense industry. 
And it's just like anything else. It's the same reason why we drive cars everywhere is because the U.S. made cars, right? And the same reason why there's guns everywhere is the U.S. makes guns. And that's another product of this of this decision, right, of the Cold War, you know, uh, that people maybe don't think about, but it's biting us in the ass, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, things too, like the, I mean, well, I don't think we should have, we shouldn't have to explain to you why the creation of the CIA was bad, uh, you know, historically. Let's to it, Collins, abolish the CIA. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but some other things like more domestically, uh, you know, the just creation of anti-communism as a sort of end goal and a just almost religious tenet of American life in itself, which was required for the Cold War, uh, I think has really done so much fucking damage to life in this country. And it's one of those things that nobody ever really talks about, but like, I think you can draw a direct line between creating an anti-communist religion in this country, a secular anti-communist religion in this country, and the reason, again, why we can't have nice things, why everything's a giant fucking disaster. I mean, even Truman wanted to do a national health insurance program, but uh, it was definitely stifled because people thought, you know, government-run healthcare would be communist. Mm-hmm. When think of how, you know, every, like, remotely, I mean, we're not even talking, like, you know, goals I would want. Like, so not even, not even, not even, like, communist goals. We're talking, like, things that are one-tenth of the way along the trail to that, right? So, like, the progressive goals of... Uh, yeah, a healthcare system like every other fucking country has shot down all the way, you know, back in Truman's day. But I mean, that's still the if you if you propose universal health care, you're always going to hear that's socialist. Can't do it. Right. I mean, that yep. was Hillary Clinton's point. Right. Socialist. Sorry. No go. Uh, but also, if you want things like anti-poverty programs, well, that's also socialist. Can't have that either. Um, you know, all the way to the point of. You know, apparently part of the reason why Obama wouldn't uh, put any of the bankers on trial from 2008 was he's too afraid of being labeled as a socialist for doing it. And it's like, well, good job. Good thing the Republicans didn't call you a socialist after that. I know, I was going to say, yeah, they call them that all the time. But, you know, but everything along the way, like the civil rights movement from the beginning was labeled a socialist conspiracy of outside agitators from Moscow all the way up to today when Democrats were calling Black Lives Matter a conspiracy from Moscow, right? Um, you know, this is this has had a very serious negative effect on this country that I don't think that we've really come to fully reckon with, that you literally can't do fucking anything here without it just being called anything to the left of Attila the Hun is impossible because it's de facto communist is uh, interesting. I mean, that and like our government is built so that we can't really change anything. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, there's the facts of the structure of the American state, which is, it's completely in the hands of the capitalist class who doesn't want to do any of these things and refuses to on class grounds. Right. And they've created a political structure around themselves. Right. That ensures that it won't even accidentally happen. Right. Uh, yeah. And then there's the social reason that we're given. Right. Uh, I mean, the real reason they didn't want civil rights is that, you know, cheap black labor is very convenient when you're trying to turn a profit. Right. Uh, the real reason they didn't want, uh, you know, that they were against the anti-war movement or whatever is that the war industry is profitable, right? 
Uh, but you know, that's not you can't tell people that, right? You know, they you know you can't tell people we're going to war with Iraq because we want their oil. Uh, that doesn't, you know, move the hearts and minds of people who know they'll never get anything from that, right? So yeah. you just, uh, you, you create this, like, boogeyman that we're all supposed to be afraid of, and that boogeyman was communism, right? Of uh, the reason why you can't have civil rights is then Russia, you know, the Soviet Union would win. <laughs> yeah, if, uh, if we had just one water fountain for everybody, well, you might as well just hand over the country to Stalin. You know, and that's... Yeah. And that's become sort of the death knell of like being able to do anything in America. I would argue it's also why the left refuses to have like party organization almost as a matter of principle, right? Why it insists on having disorganized uh, what they would call horizontalism, but it's really just individualism, you know, hiding right. behind the thing is, you know, if you ever push back on that stuff, I mean, it doesn't take long for the, you know, anti-communist sort of like uh, talking points to come out and, you know, it, to the extent that we don't even recognize how much we've internalized this ourselves as an organizing principle. Right, because like even, you know, the the hippies in the 60s, people say like, oh, the hippies were all about uh, peace and love. And you look at, uh, you know, how right-wing boomers are now. Well, you know, I mean, hippies in the 60s were not necessarily, you know, communists. You know, they had... Yeah uh you know right-wing ideology still instilled in them despite them you know wanting peace or whatever they wanted yeah and it's it's just really had a horrifying and you know i mean the anti-communist narrative itself was allowed you know to be used as a pry bar to essentially destroy the unions um You know, it was this very convenient attack you could level against any union and turn union membership against their leadership or more likely the leadership against the membership because the anti-communist elements tended to be the leadership versus the membership. But, you know, it was a way to sort of break up the labor movement. Now, I mean, talking about the 60s, I think, you know, because I want to maybe try and go out on a slightly more positive vibe. <laughs> There's not a lot yeah, of positive here. Good, good vibes. Yeah, let's try and have some good vibes. So I think one of the interesting things that came out of this too, now the Korean War specifically, is a general distaste for war in the American imperial project from people who actually got to taste it firsthand. And uh, one of the things that is interesting about the Korean War was the extent to which American GIs fucking hated it and were very vocal about the fact that they thought it was bullshit. Now, you know, as you might imagine, not all of them had like super in-depth political, you know, fucking opinions about it beyond it's just bullshit, but some of them did, but you know, they thought it fucking was bullshit and it sucked. And by the time the Vietnam war came around, when you talk about the first Vietnam protests, the large scale protests in 1964, they're actually organized by Korean war veterans. And this is the period of which war veterans become the, like element of the anti-war movement like the core element of the anti-war movement and korean war vets become a a really big part of that and that is you know a legacy that you know unfortunately kind of went to pot in america but yeah i was gonna say yeah uh the end of the draft kind of uh helped take care of that i mean that's one of the big reasons why they ended the draft by the way but uh but, you know, that was one of those positive elements. And one of the funnier aspects to come out of that is 
that naturally, of course, during the Korean War itself, which was an extremely brutal and horrifying war, that that quote you read from McCullough about like the zombies marching around just shitting themselves and all this kind of stuff, it really was a horrifying war that no matter how much the U.S. tried to explain it to a lot of GIs, like they couldn't quite wrap their head around why they were in Korea, uh, keeping the Koreans out of Korea. Um, one of the things that would happen is soldiers would speak out against the war. Also, a very common thing, which is, you know, once you're a POW, of course, the country that has you, right, wants to create propaganda or whatever. So they have you speak out against the war and they re-release uh, re that or whatever widely. And the U.S. saw that shit and panicked, right, and basically was like, oh, my God, there's soldiers saying that this horrifying meat grinder we just threw them into is bad. What should we do about that? And they created maybe one of my favorite products of the Cold War, which is the idea of brainwashing and mind control, which was their uh, response for uh, why somebody, some kid from Iowa that you shipped all the way across the world to Korea to die cold and lonely <laughs> in the middle of nowhere uh, might not want to do that. Uh, well, interesting. What's that? Oh, no, I was saying, I was yeah. saying interesting because uh, the mind control thing would come back again with uh, Sirhan Sirhan and Robert F. Kennedy. Well, yeah, and this is where, I mean, this is like a whole other thing we can get into, but hilariously... You know, the, you know, MK Ultra program, which the CIA is ultimately going to embark on, which is this idea that they're going to create, uh, you know, develop mind altering drugs to create their own sort of brainwashing mind control program or truth serum program. There's a lot of elements to it, but a lot of it literally comes out of some of it comes out of the Japanese chemical war warfare units during the second world war, but a lot of it comes out of this legend from the Korean war. Like, so what ends up happening is the American state makes up or totally invents at a whole cloth, this idea of brainwashing in order to escape the embarrassment of the fact that us soldiers are saying, Hey, this war is bullshit. Uh, so they add a whole cloth invent brainwashing. Then just maybe like five, 10 years later, that exact same state is like, Hey man, you remember that story about how like people were getting brainwashed in North Korea? That's like a technological gap that we're uh, you know, we're losing to the to the wily Asian communists. Uh, we should develop our own brainwashing program. So they essentially invented a story, then believed the story themselves, forgot that they were the ones, you know. <laughs> pitching the con it's like a con artist who buys his own goods essentially is what happened and it creates the mk ultra program which leads to the you know to several tragic deaths you know uh yeah. as well as is implicated i don't know that the extent to which it's been proved but is implicated uh, that maybe charles manson was one of the prisoners who was uh put in the mk ultra program unbeknownst to him um it is for sure i think proven that whitey bulger was experimented on while in prison who uh if people don't know whitey bulger is he's the he is a uh boston famous boston uh criminal figure who and the movie scorsese's movie the departed jack nicholson is basically whitey bulger uh you know but uh whitey bulger was one of the and i guess we can ask all day was the fact that whitey bulger was so fucked up have something to do with the fact that the cia mega dosed him with ketamine and lsd while he's in prison unbeknownst to him huh. who knows right but 
interesting. Yeah, Sirhan Sirhan's one of the people too that is kind of always rumored to be in the MK Ultra sort of sphere, but Charles Manson, I had not uh, heard that's about. A, that's a new one, and you know, I mean, who knows? I, 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 you know, at some point, I really don't care enough to actually follow up. But there was a recent book that came out that tries to make the case that while he was a prisoner in California in I think the early '60s, that he was at a jail where they were doing that kind of experimentation, and that they thought that he was in it. Um, you know, like everything good in America was done to prisoners against their will or knowledge. Uh, but it really is this, I mean, it's this interesting story. And again, it comes out of this just insanity bred from the Cold War. Like I said, I mean, again, uh, you make up a story out of, out of whole cloth, then you somehow convince yourself it's true or trick yourself so well that you think it's true. Then you back engineer the technology from the made up story. I mean, it, it's pretty it's almost like uh, Adam Curtis's hyper normalization, you know, creating the fake rea- reality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, shit, man. Um, well, that was a real trip down memory lane, Justin. Uh, a lot. Do you have any uh, thoughts? Um, I don't know. Like, what one thought I was gonna bring up was, uh, you know, as far as like, I mean, all all of these different wars and anti-communist. Uh, operations it's just like so interesting like how much you know we we kind of deified all these generals and then uh the consequences of that like uh you know macarthur like we would be in a way different place if uh, macarthur had somehow like been a little bit more savvy of a politician and ascended to the presidency like who knows like what what untold like horrors would have happened. Uh, so, so in, in one sense, uh, we we got a little bit lucky there. Yeah, and I think I think actually Curtis LeMay, I, I think might even run on a ticket at one point, or was talking about running on a ticket. I mean, it's kind of funny because in the counterfactual game, uh, there's all these scenarios where it definitely could have been so much worse. And the sad part is, there's almost no scenarios where it could have been better. <laughs> it's yeah. it, it's pretty uh horrifying in that sense yeah well shit that sucks um got any uh things you want to share <laughs> any uh, uh you know contact info things you're up to anything like that i got nothing to plug um you know if you're if you're listening to this podcast now you might see that uh mayor mayor jenny durkin just resign so that's uh hey that happened if you were listening to seattle sucks you would have known that she wasn't running for mayor months ago but you yeah you did say that i remember that i don't know where you got the intel but i do remember yeah you say that yeah that's called uh one paying attention to local politics and two uh practicing the immortal science of marxism leninism oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, oh, fuck yeah. it. We might as well close it on that. All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening to this. And hopefully, uh, yeah, things are depressing. I don't know what to tell you other than that, but uh, good luck. Wasn't a big effort. I be the pain of the revolutionary. I be the memory of the fallen warrior. I be the walking, talking struggle of my people. Oh, yes, I become on Kuma. I'll be Patrice Lumumba I'll be 